Welcome to Living the Dream, a hospitality podcast from La Donda's Coffee in New York. I'm Penny Stankowitz, an entrepreneur, sugar artist, and chef, and a generally curious storyteller. Each week, we bring you stories and insights from personalities in the world of hospitality. Chefs, publicists, writers, and creators share what it takes to build success. Whether you're in the early stages of your career and looking for a how-to guide, or established pro looking to sharpen your superpowers, we lift the veil on the industry to give you an honest, practical guide to building a career and life you love. Long before I was a chef, I watched a lot of Food Network. I mean, a lot. So much so that my poor husband probably became a chef by osmosis, although he's never going to prove it to anyone because he's never getting in that kitchen. Well, he does do a lot of dishes, so I got to give him credit for that. Back then, the shows were much more educational driven, and I have really strong memories of watching Ellie Krieger. My approach to cooking is completely much more indulgent than hers is, but she really left an impression on me. It felt like the food was a good thing, but not so good that it would feel so virtuous that I wouldn't actually enjoy the food. Watching her cook, it never felt like subtraction. She uses the word enlightened, and I really love that. Her passion for the food she was creating really shined. She's tenacious and strong, but she tempers it with ease and gentleness that I envy. I'm really excited to get to share with you the amazing conversation that I had with Ellie Krieger. We shared some wonderful treats from 16 Mill, a Brooklyn-based gluten-free bakery. But first, I want to tell you about a new and exciting project coming from LDNY this fall. It's the first official cookbook featuring home recipes from Dom's. It's called Stirring the Pot, What Dom's Cook at Home, and is being organized and orchestrated by the dynamic Dom Sylvia Baldini. Sylvia, welcome back. Tell me all about the cookbook project. It's a collection of recipes from the New York Dom's, but it's, it's, uh, the title is Stirring the Pot, What the Dom's Cook at Home. So it's a neat way of showcasing kind of family stories, food stories, and recipes from really interesting women, uh, leaders in the industry. And that I really, really enjoy. And so we started together. And as the recipe came in and the stories came in, it became bigger and bigger. And to me, reading and learning about, you know, where people have started, what they cook at home, and what Le Dames are behind the scene, I think it's really exciting. The whole purpose of being in a group like Le Dames New York is that we want to facilitate and embold women. And so all the money that we will do from selling the book will go into scholarships for women in the industry. And so we hope to really get a, a, a good thing going here behind the scene is exciting because doing a book is a cookbook always seems easier than <laughs> actually it is and what's really exciting is that every uh, person participating on on the book is a highly qualified either editor uh, recipe editor chef or somebody that knows how to do this so the process has been fabulous. Like we have some of the best in the industry putting the cookbook together. Uh, last week, I had the chance also of starting to shoot some of the pictures. They're just beautiful. So it makes me happy. Hopefully, we'll be done uh, with the first draft and everything and the design by the end of summer. And we should be ready by the fall to do this. So that's my story about the cookbook. Is it a digital release or is it going to be a hardcover? So we're going to do a, a digital release at the beginning. So it's going to be an ebook, which is actually kind of neat because I think a lot of books are going like that. But secretly, you know, I'm a big paper person. 
<laughs> and so hopefully with time, maybe after the first release, we'll be able to also do a paper version. I just, I just think uh, cookbooks are important to also to just keep them on paper still possibly yeah. because people like to live through. They're inspiration, right? If nothing else, yeah. not, you don't, yeah. may not always cook exactly from the recipe, but you're inspired by it. And that comes yeah. from the act of just going through it for sure. I, I mean, I've been doing this for now <laughs> so long, like 30 years. I don't even know. That's how old I am. And I still get excited when I get a new cookbook that I like, or when I get one of my old ones, it's just like visiting an old friends and, and checking the recipe and stuff like that. So very exciting. Our featured tasting notes from today is 16 mil and 16 mil is owned by Talia. She can be found at 16 mil.com and she's not a gluten-free person. She doesn't eat gluten-free, but she started to make a lot of gluten-free breads and then found her way into making gluten-free treats. And there was a huge demand for it. So her point of view is essentially gluten-free and no refined sugar. The stuff is not not it's sweet, but it's not overtly sweet. And I think you're going to find it's actually got a really nice, savory, salty um, note to it. Her super power treat is actually what she calls cakeies. It's a tahini and honey cake wait cookie. Dig into this. Oh, go for it. Just tear it apart. I'm so excited. And actually I do most of my baking also with less refined sugar. I think I was reading on her website. She says she uses a lot of coconut sugar, which is an interesting story because coconut sugar actually has like a fair amount of fiber in it. Really? So it has, gives you a lower blood sugar rise, but it's all sugar. I mean, <laughs> it's essentially still sugar. So it's still a treat, you know? Absolutely. Very Beautiful. soft cakey. That's why I guess it's called a cake, right? Yeah. It's covered in sesame seeds. Mm. It's a little surprising. I love it. Well, it's kind of savory. Mm. I like savory things. I don't tend to have a very sweet palate. Actually, when I'm cookie, doing cookies and testing cookies and cakes and things, I always have to have extra tasters around to make sure it's sweet enough because <laughs> I love it. This is definitely has a more savory feel to it. I love it. I totally love it. Like I could have this with a beautiful cup of tea in the afternoon and be in absolute heaven. It's really, it's really interesting because the first note, you get the sesame and then right away you get the tahini, which almost mm -hmm. tastes more like a peanut butter. It leaves kind of mm -hmm. that nut butter flavor in your mouth. And then it actually balances really nice between the bitterness of the tahini and the slight sweetness of the cookie, right? It's not overly mm -hmm. sweet. And it has like, I mean, it's almost underly sweet, I think in a good way. And it like it bridges on savory to your point before, but it also has like a kind of chewiness to it, which I think is coming from the tahini as well. Gorgeous. It is. It's beautiful. It's Thank you so it, much. Oh, my pleasure. Do you want to taste any of the other ones? Yes, I want to taste every Which one do you want to do next? I'm um, fascinated by this shortbread-y looking thing. Oh, okay. Well, this one's, a this one's a special treat. This is something that we're working on for um, a project that I'm working on. So this is oh. like a collaboration. Okay. I make treats that are sold in the new Harry Potter store in oh. Manhattan. And we're trying to develop a gluten-free or a made without gluten product to be featured in the store. And this was our collaboration. So it's got a walnut oh. crust bottom. So I and just a, what we're calling it. 
yeah, what we're calling like a brownie top, but it's really almost more like a chocolate custardy tart. Mm. Mm, this is so, I will go to the store to get this. <laughs> it's rich, mm-hmm. right? It's super rich. It has that really dark um, Dutch processed cocoa, I, mm-hmm. like the kind of Oreo cocoa. That's delicious. And I love the crumbly layer on the bottom, that really buttery, crumbly. I don't know if you use butter. It's not vegan. No, it's not vegan. There is yeah, taste of buttery. You have an incredible palate. Wow, you picked oh, up I don't all know. that. There's a lot of things going on. It in was there. more of a texture thing for me, mm-hmm. but I know it's really hard to achieve that without good old butter. <laughs> I know she does a lot with coconut oil as well, but that mm. is completely different on your palate because it melts at much much lower and temperature. Just wins all the way around. So delicious. Thank you. I'm really excited to be tasting these. Well, I hope that you enjoy them later and that you share them with the people that you love. No, I'm going to hide them from my family because they will be gone in two seconds if they are put in front of my family members. <laughs> I kind of hoard certain things around here. Today's featured guest is a prolific writer, media personality, and producer. Dom Ellie Krieger is a New York Times bestselling author with seven books to her credit. She's received not one, but two James Beard Foundation awards for her cookbooks, the latest of which is Whole in One, Complete Healthy Meals in a Single Pot, Skillet, or Sheet Pan. Her column, Voraciously, appears weekly in the Washington Post, and she's also written columns for Fine Cooking, Food Network Magazine, and USA Today. Many know her as the host of the hit Food Network show, Healthy Appetite, which, as I said earlier, is where I first discovered her back in the days I was still learning from Food Network. She's currently the host and executive producer of the series, Ellie's Real Good Food on Public Television. Ellie, I'm a huge fan. I'm so excited for this conversation. So good to be here. It's so much fun to be with a dom, with the dom. I'm really excited to actually be spearheading this and bringing incredible information to people who may not have access to it and want to know all of our secrets. That's so what my we're first... here for. We share. Yeah. We absolutely. share with each other, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And on <laughs> a broad scope, right? I don't know um, if you felt that you were supported by women entrepreneurs and women in general as you were coming up. And I think that that's really changing. Yeah, you know what? I try to just make a point of surrounding myself with people that are supportive, women, men, everyone. (laughs) And as much as possible, cutting out those who aren't. It's not always possible, but I think that I've I've really made a conscious effort to do that in my life in general. And it kind of works. It's a really hard thing to do, though, too. I'm still working on that myself. (laughs) Oh, I'm still working on it, granted. It's a, it's a work in progress always, as is life in general, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to know what your first job was. Oh, gosh. Okay, so my very first job, I'm forgetting which came absolutely first, but one of my first jobs was tutoring. One of my really, I had a great job in high school tutoring other students. So I was part of the, um, well, I I tutored in two different ways. One was I would get paid like $8 an hour to help this kid with his like Spanish homework or something. Cause I was like a very good student, always kind of like very type A, A student. I got paid eight bucks an hour to tutor peers essentially. And it was a great little job to have as a high school student. So that was my, one of my jobs. And I think that maybe coincided sort of with wrapping presents at the um, local uh, kind of gift store in my neighborhood that my grandmother, my grandmother got that job for me. (laughs) 
So I'm seeing already um, education being important and attention to detail and beauty. Yeah, I guess so. I was a terrible gift wrapper, though. I totally didn't know how, what <laughs> I was back. doing, but I did look. But then I think a, a big theme is kind of with that is like just learning on the fly, which uh, I've done a lot of in my life. And as an entrepreneur in general, you know, you got to do that. Yeah, you say yes, and then you figure out how the hell exactly. am I going to do this, right? Yeah. And what about your first job in food? So I studied nutrition as an undergraduate in college. And, um, and I was pre-med. So oh. it wasn't until really I started, I was pre-med, but I studied nutrition because it helped fulfill all the pre-med requirements. And I loved food. I always loved food from the second I was born. My mother says that me becoming a nutritionist is like a pyromaniac becoming a firefighter. <laughs> so I was just, oh, I was ravenous <laughs> always. So I loved food, interested in food, always cooking. And I was pre-med majoring in nutrition because it fulfilled all the requirements that I could be around food and so on. And as I was studying nutrition, I sort of, you know, really got that aha sense of the depth and breadth of the field, which you just don't realize when you're 18 years old going to college. So then I decided to major in nutrition and skip the pre-med part. I decided I really want to do the nutrition aspect of it. So even throughout my college, I didn't really have a job in food per se, I went on to get my master's in nutrition education from teacher's college with a minor in journalism. And all the while I was paying for all of this myself by doing modeling and TV commercials. Oh, So that was actually interesting because that was my first job as a freshman in college. That summer I like needed to get a job and knew some people in the fashion industry encouraged me to do this. And by the end of the summer, I wound up getting an offer to go to Tokyo and model all over the, the world. And I wound up taking a year off from school and doing this and then went back to school. It was always a means to an end for me. I just really needed money <laughs> to pay for school. But it wound up being actually about a 15-year career. I was with Wilhelmina Models. And I was vested for a pension in the Screen Actors Guild when I was like 28 years old. Wow. So I did a lot of commercials. And this whole career was me really, and, and my de decision to go to get my master's degree in, with a minor in journalism was really all about me trying to blend these two skill sets and passions that I had, being on camera, communicating in this way. Because I always felt, even when I was doing a silly commercial, I felt like I was communicating with people on some level and balancing that with my passion for health and nutrition and food. That was my long way of answering your question. No, but that was amazing. You answered like 15 questions. So <laughs> we're good. I just have to hang out and let you do it. My first job in food, I think really came when I graduated from my master's degree and I started working in private practice as a dietitian. And my approach was always very food centric, which you might think, well, of course you're a nutritionist. Isn't it all about food? But interestingly, many dietitians don't really know that much about food. I always took a very culinary approach to working with people, helping them with recipes, helping them with cooking skills and so on. So that would, I guess, be my first real food job. <laughs> so in, in, in a way of finding your niche in the world, that was probably one of the keys, I imagine, because nobody else was really doing that at the time. Yeah. And I wouldn't say nobody else. That wouldn't be really fair. But um 
I did surround myself and have teachers who were really proponents of that, particularly one of my professors, Joan Gussow, who basically started talking about local seasonal food when everyone thought she was completely crazy. And she taught a class called Nutrition Ecology. And it completely blew my mind open of what nutrition food and could be and is because it's politics, it's agriculture, it's sociology. <laughs> it's like so much. We know that now it's part of our regular vernacular in a way, but back then, and when she was really coming up, cause she is, uh, I just celebrated her 90th birthday with her. Um, that, that's so what she, good nutrition will do for you. Right? Also, yeah. <laughs> and good genes. Yeah. You yeah. need both. Right. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so um, other people were doing it. I think I'm very encouraged because I think a lot of the new generation of people going into dietetics are much more food focused. And I like to think I had a little tiny something to do with that. Of course you did. And I wasn't joking when I said that I was, you know, when I was in the nineties, when I was making film and doing other things, I was watching Food Network and I was learning and I was absolutely watching and learning from you. And not your food is also beautiful. So I think that you break a lot of barriers because the food is approachable. It's not overly complicated. It's delicious. It's beautiful. How much of that was intent? Um, all of it. <laughs> all of it. Yeah. So you're I mean, a planner. Well, it's interesting because um, to me, at my very, very heart of hearts, I am a nutrition educator and I inspire people with recipes. And so for food to be inspiring, for recipes to inspire, and, and television's a wonderful medium for that because it like gets you excited, right? It gets you jazzed. And it, it gives you the sense of, oh, I can do that because you're watching it and you're feeling now able, but it sparks that excitement. And it has to be visually beautiful. It has to be visually compelling. And one of the things that I think people have this preconceived notion of food that's healthful, that's good for you, is going to be just lame. <laughs> they think in their mind, it's like, oh, I want, want, okay, mm -hmm. I yeah. eat it because I should. Fine. And that's not the food. That's, I'm trying to change that whole thing, I'm trying to change that mindset, push people out of that. And how else to do that but show them, present them gorgeous food that they just want to eat because it happens to be compellingly beautiful and delicious. Like, don't even worry about the rest of it. Just make it great and people are going to eat it. And when people eat it, then you're making nutrition change. I mean, it's really like kind of that basic. I did it on purpose. Hard about it being accessible is really, really important to me because I want people to have a sense of, there's a word in nutrition education. It's like, called self-efficacy, right? It's exactly what it sounds like, but it's a very deep motivator. If you feel like you can do it, then you are more likely to do it. And, you, and it's self-perpetuating because then you will do it and it will increase your confidence and, and, make, and help you try other things. So it really pushes change forward, the sense of self-efficacy. And how can you feel that way. If you can't afford the ingredients, if you can't find the ingredients, if you feel the technique is so cumbersome and takes up too much time. So my whole thing is breaking down all those barriers and those simple things that are still kind of enlightened, I think are the answer to making change happen. Would you say then that you, you looked at the landscape 
and and saw where you could fit, where you could be different. It's a hard lift to to make health forward food sexy, right? So how did that come about for you? How did you develop that point of view? So um, it came over time. And my initial thing, I did an internship at CNN when I was in my master's. I did it through that program. And then also at CBS in New York. Um, And I kind of learned about, oh, how does this work? people pitch the producers. And I just saw how this all worked. And I did see that I had a unique niche in this sense of expertise as as a food and nutrition person. So this was before the cooking part came up. So as a food and nutrition person, I could pitch myself as an expert. So that's what I started to do when I got out of college. I pitched myself to different producers and also PS, not only television, but also writing. Uh, So different magazine editors, I got a million and one rejections. And I decided that my job was actually to pitch. So if I was doing the pitching, then at least I was doing my job. Can you tell me more about that? Can you tell me like the actual pitching process? Because I imagine that whoever's listening to this really wants to do what you do. And the pitching process in and of itself can be incredibly intimidating. Intimidating. Yes, it's heartbreaking. It's like rejection. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think the whole modeling thing really helped me sure. with that because I was just, I was used to rejection. I mean, you, for TV commercials, I think that at that time, the Screen Actors Guild average was 45 auditions before you book one. Wow. But you're just going out there doing it. Yeah. So I almost saw it like that. It was sort of like, you got to swing or you're ne- you got to swing <laughs> the bat. Um, and I also thought another analogy that I felt feel even to this day works for me is the sense of planting seeds. So not all those seeds are going to grow. Maybe just a couple are going to grow. But eventually, if you keep planting, you keep watering and you keep sowing and you keep weeding and you keep getting in there and tending that enough is going to grow that you will have a garden. But it takes all of that consistency. It takes all of that work. And it always did for me. And it always does still. But it was definitely harder back then because, you know, you need a job to get a job. So you don't have any bylines. Mm -hmm. You don't have any video. And so it was just about cracking into something. And what I found really was helpful is to go really hyper local. So I went, I, my first byline was from the New York Roadrunners Club magazine. So it's nothing fancy, right? It's not a national distribution. It's literally a sports magazine for a runner's club here, but it gave me my first byline. I kept in touch with the editor from there. And as she was growing, she wound up moving on to a Rodale publication. She hired me to do work there. Then she moved on to a national women's magazine. And then she brought me in for some stuff there. So this was like over the course of a couple, several years um, before it really started like snowballing, uh, building to something. Those seeds started becoming really viable plants. (laughs) And then on the TV end, oh my gosh, 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 gosh. I just pitched local news. I'm a dietitian. I, I pitched my expertise and then just ideas, ideas, ideas. And didn't hear back. You know, people just don't get back to you. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't take that personally, right? You yeah, just have you just to write can't. it off. You just like... have to go. You just have to. And then meeting as many people as you can through parties and networking and events and things like that. And then following up with them, asking them if they want to have a tea with you or whatever. And eventually creating a bit of a contact list. And I've, 
And then I did get a offer to be on a Food Network show as a nutrition expert. It was one of those live shows. I forget the name of it, but it was live, like kind of magnet food news. Is it like that show. food news that yes. I think had in the very beginning where they were sitting in like a diner booth? Yeah, yeah, it was one of those. And they brought me on as a nutrition expert to talk about some topic that was like health related. And I remember my first TV appearance, even after doing commercials and stuff, my first live TV appearance, I remember I, I was not ready for the lights. Their lights were mm. really strong. And I remember strong and hot and it's cool. And the <laughs> lights are on. And I remember looking like a deer in the headlights, thinking to myself, Ellie, and I'm smiling like this, <laughs> maybe you should be listening to the question. <laughs> like I was just sort of stunned by the whole thing. But yeah, so it I is hard to be in the moment in that. Totally. 110%. And I think that takes a while to cultivate. Because first you're, well, especially when you're quite young and you, I feel like I have something to prove, mm -hmm. you know? So then I have to puff myself up a little bit just to feel like confident enough. And as you get into your career or as I have gotten into my career and realize like, wow, I actually have something to say that can help people and that people are interested in, then I just can say it. And, and I've lived it for so long. I think it's that, what is that 10,000 hours thing? Mm -hmm. That I think is really true. Have that amount of time doing it. And all the more reason to start local and start small. And, and I say local, but I mean, now start, if you want to get, do this, write a blog, write a, um, do, you know, TikTok videos. I mean, you could blow up, but even if you, in a good way, blow up, <laughs> but even if you don't, immediately and it takes time it's almost good because then you're kind of like you could delete the stuff absolutely you know you're kind of working through things and what i suggest is also when if you're doing on camera stuff whether it's videos for youtube or whatever go back and look have a drink if you want but look with a gentle loving eye that's hard it is. Yeah. Because you like, don't even ever yeah. want to look at yourself on camera. Or hear your sound of your own voice. Yeah. It's, and you have to toughen your skin up to that as well, don't you? Yeah. But also if you do it from a loving place, so if you, if you just start like, okay, I'm going to be gentle, loving with myself, but I'm going to look at this video and see where I could do better. So sometimes the way you're feeling you look is different from how it comes across. So that's why it's important to look at your videos and see how you're coming across from as much of an objective place as you can. And to look for constructive criticism, right? But from the right sources, from people yes. who have your best interests in mind. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Sometimes I find people are ready to crush your dreams <laughs> and say, oh, that's so hard to do. Well, lots of things are hard to do. Of course it's hard to do. If it wasn't hard to do, everyone would be doing it. <laughs> I think so, that those people are the people who don't follow their dreams. I think the people who are following their dreams understand and, and approach it from the point of you getting better. I have an actor friend who I was, I don't know what I was saying about some video thing I was doing. And he reminded me, the audience wants you to do well. The audience is not wishing you badly. They want a good show. They want something good for you. I'm not saying that there, there aren't a couple of people out there who are going to be happy when you flub the line or yeah. whatever it is <laughs> and then write internet comments to back it up. But generally speaking, they, they, there's, a, there's a sense of anticipation that you're going to do well. And if you can kind of keep that in the back of your mind and maybe you don't worry so much about 
the perception as you do staying in the moment. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think on social media, people might be looking for slips, <laughs> you yeah. know, like that kind of thing. But then the haters, are gonna, you know what? Who cares? Oh, that's it's a good almost- one. What about haters? Tell me about haters. How do you feel about them? You, you delete them. You delete them. There. Block them immediately. Block them. Like literally I learned about social media and I learned this the hard way. It's sort of like, instead of seeing, oh, you can look at it. And the way I was initially looking at it is like an open forum. This is a, everyone can say whatever they want here. This is an open forum. But then when it gets ugly, and sometimes it does because there is just mean, ugly people out there. It's not, it becomes not okay. And so I started, I had an incident. I really had to wind up blocking a lot of people. And I started rethinking the way I think about social media platforms. And now I think about it as if, as if it's my home. So you can, I invite you into my home. I want to hear what you have to say. I want you, I want to feed you. I want to talk with you and I want to hear from you. I, I love your ideas. I want to build off of that. And I want to have an interplay off of that. But if you come to my home, there are certain rules. You can't be mean to anybody, me or anybody in my home. Yeah. You can't be trying to just immediately sell something. You coming to my <laughs> home to have tea with me and you're trying to sell me. Yeah. So I think um, I, if you start to think about it as if it's your home and what you would not tolerate in your own home in terms of respectfulness and so on and kindness, anyone who doesn't is can't come back (laughs) it's just really as simple as that and that really helped me cultivate what I think is a fantastic food community on social media I really love being on social media now because my the people who are following me really have great ideas and add to the conversation in really great ways it's really about sharing and if I post a recipe They'll say, oh, I do this with tamarind paste or whatever it may be. And I get fantastic ideas and and people answer each other on the comments. It's fantastic. So I think, um, but it is something that you cultivate. I think it goes back to the beginning of what we were saying of cutting out negative people and surrounding yourself and filling your life with positive, kind people. And that doesn't mean that they have to necessarily always agree with you. What I hear you talking about are healthy boundaries. Yes. Right. And that's, has that been a challenge for you? Because I know that for me, it is, I think for a lot of women, boundary setting is, uh, it's a minefield, right? That we have to figure out how to negotiate through. I have to say, I think it's something I'm good at, but I, and I may, I have to credit my mom. My mom was a guidance counselor in high school uh, to high school students. Mm -hmm. So I realized after I learned about nutrition counseling, I remember after my first chapter one of nutrition counseling, I was like, oh my God, I have been counseled my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks mom. But in a good way. So I think my mom really helped me cultivate that from a very young age. And I I definitely benefited from it. So I think I'm, I'm innately sort of good at that and feeling like, okay, I'm starting to feel overwhelmed and grumpy and sad. I get, if I'm overwhelmed and I have too much going on. I actually start to feel a little depressed. Like I just slog. And when I can, I recognize that feeling and I know I have to pull back and set some boundaries in terms of saying no to some things or getting more help with other things or whatever. Are you good at asking for help? Uh, I'm less good at that. (laughs) I am. 
Is there a team? Do you have a team that helps you do social media and helps you bring all of your projects to life? Yeah. So I have, I'm fortunate to have a wonderful management team that helped me with like the business management stuff, which I really appreciate. Um, and I'm very integrally involved with all the decision-making and so on, but um, you have to be right. You can't, you can't just let that, you can't just look up, turn a blind eye and let somebody else manage that. No, you really can't. You have to be very hands-on. I mean, it would be nice to be able to say like, Oh, pass it on off. But, uh, but I feel like you need to be responsibly hands-on with it. How did the Washington Post column come about? So I had been writing articles for years for different publications. So I wrote for USA Today, or did a regular column for them for a while. I wrote for Fine Cooking, did a column for them. Uh, did columns in sports magazines, as I had mentioned, some Rodale publications. So I was, had a pretty good you know, writing career going on, but I wound up connecting with Joe Yonan, who's the editor of the Washington Post food section, and connecting with him at a book event. So this is about networking, which is like such an ugly word for some reason, because it sounds so manipulative or something. So he and I had kind of gotten to know each other a little bit um, after meeting at this initial book event. And, um, and then this, I guess, the person writing their Nourish column decided to go in a different direction. And he thought of me and, uh, and asked me if I wanted to do it. And I was like, yes. And that was 2014. I was looking, going back and looking, my goodness. So that's been really wonderful. I love working at the Washington Post. The food team, everyone there, uh, you know, it's like the perfect combination of they want you to succeed. They want you to win. They want to love your recipe. And they also have extremely high standards of excellence. And they're just kind, wonderful people. So it's a fantastic team. And I have to say that other jobs that I've had in the writing world, I didn't feel that sense of same sense of team and camaraderie around it. And even though I'm here in New York, I still feel that there. So I feel very, very lucky to be part of it. That's an important thing for an entrepreneur. I think a lot of people who are going to go off and to be or have this aspirations to be entrepreneurs don't realize how lonely it is, right? It's really you sitting in a room doing your work. And when you do find those opportunities to be part of a larger community who love the things you love and who are interested in the things you do, I think it's really important. Absolutely. And, and to your point, also getting back to the team aspect um, in terms of whether I have enough help and have a team. I, besides my manager, I also, I hire freelancers to help me. I have a wonderful culinary assistant, Irbania Tavares, and she has been with me for years now. And she works with uh, Wellness in the Schools, which is like, she's just fabulous, health-minded chef. And I adore her. And it's amazing to me when you say about that, so much of the work I do is solo, right? Um, and so when we're cooking together, which we cook couple few times a month together you know over the years you just become so close and there's something about being in the kitchen together it's such an intimate space because we're not in a commercial kitchen we're in my test kitchen which is basically uh, not this place I have an apartment that I use just for work but it's a residential apartment and it's like feels like home to me so here you are in your home essentially your home kitchen with a person closely working and I love it you know, we've become very good friends. And I, I feel that most of my culinary assistants I've become good friends with. And then I also have another assistant who helps me um, with more 
nutrition stuff. Who's a, who's a dietitian, And she helps me with social, some social media. I mean, she helps me coordinate it, but I am the one really responding and putting out the posts. Um, I, I tried to, whenever I have tried to have to delegate that to anyone, it just never worked. Cause I think it really has to be to your point, authentic it has to feel like me it has to sound like me it kind of has to be me <laughs> in that way one of the things that I that came across to me when I was reading some of your columns from the Washington Post I hear your voice speaking to me you Yay. know it's it, no but it's you and and I feel there's a conversational tone to it you're getting me excited about the food nobody else could write that but you and that's which one of the things one of the many things obviously that you bring to the table and that's also made you successful so did that come about very naturally to you obviously you were studying journalism in school was it a natural transition or is that something that you had to work to find your voice oh my gosh work so hard for and i always wrote i always enjoyed writing to a degree but actually i i forget who said this quote but it's like i don't like writing i like having written yeah I'm I mean, writing can sometimes be like the most painful thing mm-hmm. <laughs> um, still to this day. And then it flows more now, now that I'm in a real groove. But then still, sometimes it feels like, oh, my gosh, it's good. Just eat it. Like, I feel like <laughs> just writing that. <laughs> How <laughs> long have, did it take you to find that groove? Decades, honestly. Yeah. You know, and I feel like there's I'm, no, I, I there's like no overnight. S- no, there is no overnight. And I really... I really believe in this perspective in life is I approach everything as a constant learner. And I feel like this is the key to longevity in a field. Never think you have it figured out because the minute you think you have it figured out, you're behind. (laughs) Literally just be open and ready to approach every new experience and learn. It's like if if you stop learning after you leave college, then you're, you're really never going to grow. So I feel like I'm in a constant state of growth and development and learning. I'm learning from you right now. <laughs> and so I feel really grateful for that. And I think that perspective is, is really important. And curiosity, right? Just being curious and asking questions. Yeah, totally. Yeah. The sense of wonder. How important is a personal brand? I mean, in the media, it, it's critical. You have to differentiate yourself and put yourself forth in the world in a very visible, palpable way. And you have to kind of decide what that is, but you can also change. So I think it's not immutable. And I think it's important to actually change and bend. You know, with one of the ways that I have on television, for example, when I really started doing this, there was the sense of super polishedness that had to be. So your makeup had to be perfect. Everything had to be perfect. The way you spoke, you couldn't say, um, or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, see, there I go. <laughs> and because um, things were like fine-tuned, edited. And I think that has really changed. And I think the performance, I call it a performance, but the way I am on camera also had to change with that in a good way, where I could just really be more myself. And I could like slip up and say Chardonnay when I meant Pinot Grigio or whatever, and just say it like that. Oops. Mm-hmm. Kind of say owning that the mistakes, owning the mistakes, right? The confidence yeah. to own it. Confidence to own it. But I think the way the media and the expectations of the media have changed too. So that 
sense of slick, everything seamless and perfect is almost not even that appealing anymore. For sure. And especially with social media and all these video behind the scenes kind of video vibes, I think being more relaxed, being more natural, letting yourself make mistakes and has been an important transition in terms of the way I am on camera. And I think people get to know me better, but I don't know if that would have been so even acceptable when I first started doing this many, a couple decades ago. I think so you're right. I think social that, media changed it. Yeah. But you really have to be able to change and grow. And, and some of that. Yeah. So, and we went from like Julia Child dropping a chicken on the floor to that highly polished persona and now kind of coming back to yes. it being okay to drop the chicken on the floor. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Not that anyone should drop the chicken on the floor, but if you were to if you do, then you do. It's not do, the end of do. the world. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I wanted to talk about Ellie's real good food. Is this the first time that you've been a producer? Yes. On a project? Yes. What's that like? <laughs> Hell. <laughs> Hell. Yeah. In a good way. Eating double sticks. Um, <laughs> Okay. So it was really interesting. So I, I love public television and I think it's a wonderful platform for cooking shows. I think people go to public television ready to learn something. They're in that mind frame. So I think it is such a good fit for me. So I was excited about that, but what was interesting is I really had to learn how to do this from scratch and essentially I had to finance the whole show Oh wow! and different shows work different ways. So not every public television show works in this way, but this particular model that I was, that was open to me was that I had to fund the show. So that's how I became the executive producer. So I didn't do the day-to-day production of the show, but I essentially was own the show and am response and was responsible for funding it. So I did that for two years and it's, not the work I really enjoy doing, to be honest with you. I don't really like that part of it. That's not what I do. That's not where my heart is. But I did it because I wanted this show and I, and I wanted to do the heart part, <laughs> which is shooting the show and bringing that out. So I'm so glad that it worked out. But it was really so much work and so much effort and, and really a mind boggling set of rules that didn't get necessarily presented to me in a orderly fashion, but Mm -hmm. I I learned them as I was going and I would say, okay, I'm ready to do this. I have a sponsor for, Oh no, 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 no. You can't do that. You have to do these five steps first and then you can do that. Well, okay. There's no (laughs) book, right? There's no manual of how to produce a TV show. Exactly. So just like, it was hard. It was hard getting it off the ground. I wound up doing a Kickstarter. Wow to get it off the ground and doing a Kickstarter was a whole education process in itself. Oh my Lord. It was like a funny Lucille ball routine (laughs) because with a Kickstarter, you have to give little gifts for each level of donation that people put in. So at the end, it was like, it wound up being around the holiday time. And I had to send out these bags of books and granola, which I homemade granola. And literally the the postal service won't come pick it up. So I had to go literally to the post office with like carts. I had like bags in my backpack, shopping bags, cart full. I was like a bag <laughs> lady wheeling into the post office in New York City no. to send these things out. It was not glamorous. It is not glamorous. 
but I did it. So I'm very extreme because of it. I'm because of all that. I'm extremely proud of getting that show off the ground. You kind of had to go take, it's not a step back in your career, but you were already sort of past that point of having to do all that really hard stuff by yourself. And here you are. I mean, I think that that's, for me, that's one of the keys to success when your passion is so driving you that you're willing to do the really hard work to make your vision come true. Yes, that I think that has been the constant in my entire career, that I'm really willing to step up and do the work and not shy away from it. And sometimes it's this weird personality trait in me that when I get my heels dug in, there's just like sort of nothing's going to stop me. And I just, I'll hit a wall and I'll say, I have to, there's gotta be a way. Always <laughs> Over a way. this wall, Always. under, I'm gonna dig a hole under this wall. I'm gonna chip away at that tiny little hole in the wall, but there has to be a way. And maybe I just need to look at this wall completely differently. And maybe I have to step back from the wall and make 10 paces back and like, ricochet over it. I don't know. But I feel that that sense of creative problem solving and stubbornness, stubborn as all get tenacious. Out. Let's call yes. it tenacious. Because <laughs> uh, yes. that, that's a word I'm intimately familiar with as well. So I think those are qualities. And, and also, I have known when to say like, okay, enough's enough. And we shot two seasons of the show. And it became... I don't, didn't want to do the funding of it anymore. I was sort of like, okay, after two seasons, if people aren't calling me and saying, okay, we want to sponsor it, then I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. But I put in two years worth of, of funding that. And now, honestly, for me, what I'm finding is I'm getting a bigger audience for much less of a heavy lift on social media platforms. I was going to ask you about YouTube. Are you using YouTube to reach I'm your using- audience? Well, I use YouTube, but I, where I'm really getting my audience is more like Instagram, IGTV, videos on Facebook. I just started with TikTok, which is so much fun, actually. I'm having such you. a blast with it. <laughs> it's fun. So I feel that that's where I'm even getting bigger numbers in terms of audience and it costs a fraction. So it's different than a TV show, but I do own all of the footage of my show and I am posting those videos on, oh, by the way, the public television show is still airing and reruns, so you can catch it. And my Food Network show is now on Discovery Plus, which oh, wonderful. all these people are writing to me saying that they're enjoying watching the old, you know, versions of that show. So, so that's it's nice to have that kind of longevity in there. That's impressive as well. I mean, to continue to have that that continuum of longevity is very impressive. Well, yeah, maybe then, not to you, I but see, it like, is to me. Like my very first TV shows, and I'm like, oh no, I didn't even like know how to hold a knife. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, I learned knife skills while shooting the Food Network show. So that's sort again, of <laughs> again tenacious, <laughs> tenacious, and like, what's the problem? Okay, we'll figure out the answer to that. I think they're they're major keys to success, right? Not being afraid to tackle a problem, whatever it happens to be, and to realize your own limitations at the moment and to grow. If we think we know everything there's no room for growth. Yes, completely. And if we try to have every single duck in a row and be perfect, we're also never going to start. So sometimes you just have to like jump in. And it's not to say I didn't have a lot of skills. I just didn't have every single skill. 
But until you literally just get in and start doing it, there is no way to really learn except to just get knee deep in it all and figure it out. And of course, there's going to be wild successes from that. And then there's going to be moments that you cringe, like, what was I thinking wearing that shirt or jeans or whatever it was? You know, like I think of the entire 80s, pretty much. Like it was the entire decade. <laughs> but you cannot be blamed for that. I mean. <laughs> Can I? I know. I made this. Those are my, those are my decisions to lie in the bed and grease my hips to get into my jeans. But that's another story. I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. Doing that. Yeah. You, you seemingly have found a way to, to conquer the work-life balance issues and to be strong, but also be soft at the same time. And that's kind of what I took away from this. Oh, thank you. That's the yoga thing, right? You gotta, do you do yoga? I do do yoga. Yeah. Cause that's like that whole thing being like strong and powerful, but also bendable, (laughs) like soft, softening in it. I don't know. A little being older helps with that, don't you think? I absolutely do think I do. Yeah. And that's another thing that's I, I'm going to take away from this is that idea of having a lot of ambition and wanting success for yourself, but in a in a way that is compassionate and nurturing. Yeah, yeah, and I think the whole notion of ambition being almost like a dirty word for women—it's like not. It's interesting because I think one of the sources of my success also is that people like like to work with me and I try to make sure that they do. I want to make life easier for people and I want people to like to work with me. And that doesn't mean I'm always like a pushover or ever, (laughs) but, but I think that sense that you can be ambitious and also have people like you at the same time. So looking for role models for that. I mean, there are many in Ladam. What does success mean to you? Success means to me doing meaningful work in the world that connects me with other people, that uplifts people in some way, but that also makes a living for me. And that's success career-wise, but success as a person also means having that balance in my life where I'm being active and healthy and I have rich, beautiful relationships, and I'm able to support the people in my life and accept the support that they give me and having that come together with a meaningful, dynamic career, I think is success to me. Thank you so much for being generous and sharing your journey with us. I had a really great time talking to you and I learned so much from you. Same here. And thank you for having me. It's a real honor. And I love that you're doing this. So thank you for doing this. Hi there, I am Jessica Craig, pastry chef of Sandbar and Hudson, formerly known as High Street on Hudson. One thing that I wish I knew when I first got into this industry is how important self-care is. I once had a pastry job where a lot of the staff would always say, make sure you're taking care of yourself. And initially, I took an insult to that because my thought was, do I not look like I'm taking care of myself? But the further along I got in the industry, the more that I realized that you just give so much of yourself and just to make sure to make the time for your family, for your friends, and number one, yourself, your mental, your spiritual, and your physical health is, should always be number one. And that's a main thing that I wish I knew coming into the industry. For me, 
making time to meditate, making time to do nothing. That's a new concept for me as well to just kind of sit around and just be, especially being in this industry, you're just so used to running around and just making cooking such a huge part of your identity. It's okay to step away from that sometimes and just exist because, you know, we do live in a society where unless you're producing, then that's your value. And it's okay for yourself to be that value. I believe self-care is something that honestly took therapy for me to feel comfortable making that time for myself. Um, Before going to therapy, I would always feel guilty about doing the things that made me happy outside of work or not giving all of myself to work. Unfortunately, just the culture of the restaurant hospitality industry has always been unless you're literally dying, you should be at work or be doing all your things for work. And I'm slowly unlearning that. And it hasn't always been easy, but as time has progressed, it's slowly become easier. Living the Dream is a hospitality podcast produced by LaDame Descoffier, New York, and me, Penny Stakowitz. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you enjoyed your time with us, please like, share, and review. Thanks to Sylvia Baldini, Jessica Craig, and Ellie Krieger. Ellie can be found at elliekrieger.com. Today's tasting notes came from Talia Tutak at 16 Mill. You can find her at 16mill.com. Head to ldny.org for more information on the organization. And you can find me at sugar-couture.com and on Instagram at sugar underscore couture or at penny.stanklet. Our theme song and audio bites are created by music supervisor and composer DJ Cherish the Love. And our gorgeous logo is designed by Lauren Nysonson of Sugar and Scrub. We're on all social channels at Living the Dream LDNY podcast. And check the show notes for links to LDNY and all of this episode's guests. Thank you.